Well, it is cold, that's for sure. It's amazing how quickly those of you, especially that are from the north or the, the Midwest, and once upon a time you were used to cold weather, and then all of a sudden you move down here, and it's amazing how quickly your blood can thin out. And so what used to be like a warm winter day is suddenly just a day where you don't even want to walk outside. Anybody like that with me? I'm, that's, that's where I am. So were it not for this big body, I'd really have a problem because my blood is very thin after living here for so long. So, well, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Galatians. Hopefully you're not tired of hearing that. We've been in our study of the book of Galatians for a number of weeks now, and we still have several weeks to go. And I'm going to tell you as we start out this morning that this is an incredibly difficult passage. In fact, I listened to several sermons this week of guys that preached on this particular passage and they average probably an hour and 10 or an hour and 20 minutes. Yeah, so what do you think about that? What do you think about staying just a little bit longer this morning? We're not going to ask you to do that, actually. I'm going to try to condense mine into about 35 minutes. But this really is a very difficult passage. And you're really going to have to stay kind of connected with me, keep your nose in the Word there, and, uh, and really listen this morning. And I hope you walk away with a really good understanding of this passage, because believe it or not, we are headed someplace as we study this book, and I think it's going to be incredibly helpful to you, not just as we study this book, but I really believe life in general for you to understand this general theme here in the book of Galatians. You know, it's normal for us when we hear the radical claims that salvation is by grace alone and not by our works, the natural response for us is to say, if we're free from the law, then does that mean we don't have to obey the law of God? In fact, there are churches out there this morning, probably right here in the Triangle area, that would say, yes, that's what, that's what it means. That since we are no longer under the law, we are free now to basically do whatever we want to do and as long as we do it in the name of Jesus. <laughs> Maybe you've known some people like that. And so that's a natural question to ask. If I'm saved only by Christ's death on the cross and not by my own performance, then why should I be concerned about holy living? Do I have any obligation to keep God's law? And if so, why should I do that? And we've reached the point in Paul's letter where someone who's been following along closely will inevitably ask this question, and that is, so what is the law? What is the Mosaic law? And why did God establish it anyway? Tim Keller, in fact, adds this when he wrote, in fact, there's no more practical question than that of the relationship of the Christian to the law of God. Our other questions about how to live, how should I treat my spouse, how should I spend my money, what corners can I cut in my job, these questions all stem from the central question, what is my relationship as a Christian to God's law? And so Paul, if you were with us two weeks ago, Paul gave a theological argument, a really good argument where we really had to dig down deep to understand the theology. And today, He's going to kind of reverse course a little bit, and while I say it's a really incredibly difficult passage to connect together, he gets incredibly practical with us, and he gives us a practical argument of why we have the law and why we need the law. Look at verse 15 of chapter 3, and we're going to, we're going to meander our way down through the text and go through down verse 25. Verse 15 says, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. I really love that first phrase, to give a human example, brothers. Some of you, if you've been with us now for several weeks, as we've been studying this book, it's really great that Paul all of a sudden makes a transition 
and he uses a really enduring term like brothers. Because he's been pretty tough on these people. I mean, he's told them who came in and tricked you, who came in, and one term that he's used is who's bewitched you. And he says now, as he gets into verse 15, it's almost like he's mellowing a little bit, and he kind of comes down a little bit off the fence, and although he's going to keep strong in his argument, he says, I want to give you a real human example that even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. That's pretty easy to understand. Paul points out that even human contracts are binding and difficult, if not impossible, to void. Now, some of you work in industries where you have contracts, and you know that a good lawyer, at least they tell me this. I had an attorney tell me this week on a contract that I'm involved in. He said, well, the other attorney was a really good attorney, and he wrote this in there for a reason, right? He wrote it in there because he wanted to be able to get to a point where if he really didn't want to do this or wanted to do something else, he could do it. But most contracts, once they're ratified, once they're verified, once two parties sign it, and sometimes they ask for a a third party to notarize it, once that's done, it's, it's over. Once it's been ratified, it's there. It's not amended. Imagine if you worked at a car dealership and you sold somebody a car and They came in the next day and said, I really like the car. I know I've signed all the papers. However, I really wanted leather seats. And the car dealer looks and goes, well, you signed this contract, right? You you, you said the cloth seats were okay and you liked it at this price. You don't go in and go, yeah, but I want to change that and change it up, right? I mean, that's not the way it works. Not the way it's supposed to work anyway. I wish it did. I'd probably buy more cars if we could kind of annul the agreement and kind of start all over a few days later. Verse 16, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, refers to singular his offspring, or in some translations it says his seed, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Now, you'll remember, if you have your Bible, you can turn back to Genesis chapter 12, because this is an important part of Scripture for you to understand. You'll remember in Genesis chapter 12, some of you will, that God makes his covenant with Abraham. He tells him several things. We won't take the time to read that text, but if you have your Bible, you can thumb back through there to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And God tells Abraham he's going to do several things with him. In summary, he's going to give him a land. He's going to make of him a great nation. There's going to be an incredible blessing. There's going to be a seed. In fact, in fact all of the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through his seed, through Abraham was a really incredible thing seeing that Abraham didn't even have any kids but God made this promise to him that ultimately the Messiah would come through his line ultimately God would provide a savior to his people now it's not until Genesis chapter 15 that God makes it official he validates this agreement this covenant that he's made with Abram who will become Abraham when God made this covenant with Abraham He promised, uh, chapter 15 and verse 1, he said, I'm a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. This man will not be your heir, but one who shall come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and he said, "Now, now look up into the heavens and count the stars. If you're able to count them. And he said, so shall your descendants be. Really scary thing. Imagine you young dads here if God did that with you. If he took you outside and said, hey, Look up into the stars, because that's how many kids you're going to have. How many of you go, I don't know if I ever want to, I'm not interested in even one. I mean, that that would be just unbelievable when you look up and you see the stars. If you've ever been out in a clear night and you look at all the stars and you think, that's what's going to happen as a result of you. 
This is the agreement that God's making. I love verse 6 in Genesis chapter 15 because that's where we know how Abraham received his righteousness. Then he believed in the Lord, the text says, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. And then look at the end of that passage there at how Abraham responded. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And he said to him, I'm the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land and to possess it. What an awesome thing. And then in verse 8, Abraham said, Oh, Lord God, how may I know that I shall possess it? In other words, how do I know you're really going to do what you say you're going to do? I, I want to believe this. I want to believe you're making this agreement with me, but I'm, but I'm getting really old and I don't have any kids and there's a lot of stars up there. How are you ever going to do this? In verse 8, God ratifies the covenant by a ceremony that was common in the ancient times. On the Lord's instruction, Abraham was to take a cow, a goat, a ram, a dove, and a pigeon. He was to then cut them in two, lay one half here, one half here, and then with a path in between, the two parties were to walk through those dead animals, those slain animals. And so at sunset, God caused a deep sleep as well as a terror and great darkness. You know, some people say that Abraham had a dream. I really like to refer to it more that he really had a nightmare and he fell asleep. And when he fell asleep, after reassuring Abraham his promise, the Lord symbolically passes through the animals in the form of a, a smoking oven and a flaming torch. What an incredible thing that would have been to see. Now, it really seems awfully strange to us today, doesn't it? I know it's Sunday morning. Some of you stayed up way too late last night watching football. I, I get that, all right? All right? So, so stay with me because now I, I lost you when I talked about chopping the animals in two. You're going, okay, that's disgusting. I'm reading in, uh, I'm going to go back to Matthew where Jesus was talking. That's what, I, I've already lost you. This is a really strange thing. Imagine if I said, hey, I'd like to buy your car. Let's sign an agreement. And you said, okay, how about coming over to my house this afternoon? And I said, fine. And I got there. And you had five different kinds of animals, and you chopped them in two, and they were laying half here and half there, and you said, now let's walk through it. Would that seem normal to any of you? There's always usually one sarcastic person in the crowd that says, yeah, it seemed normal to me. That would not seem normal. That was a very strange thing. But in Abraham's day, this was the way that a contract was signed. Literally, they were saying this. If I break the agreement that I'm making with you, I should be cut up and cut off. I will deserve to happen to me exactly what these animals, what happened to these animals. <laughs> I thought this week as I studied this passage, I thought, wow, wouldn't we be a different culture if, the, if we signed contracts that way? If we said, hey, remember, if you don't pay your bills, you're going to be cut up, sawn in two, and we're going to walk between you. I mean, how many would pay your bills? We wouldn't see that John Orcutt. You ever see his commercials on TV? You know, bankruptcy is your friend. You don't have to pay your bills. You deserve a great Christmas. So how about, in other words, let's just totally invalidate the contract, the agreement that you made. What if he said, well, you're going to have to be sawn in two and we're going to walk in between you. I think we'd stop a lot of that, wouldn't we? Here's what's extraordinary. Normally, though, both parties sign a covenant. They sign the agreement and they walk between the slain animals whose blood would symbolically ratify the agreement. But in this case, don't miss this. Don't miss this, because you're going to go out of here this morning and you're going to go, wow, I never knew that. In this case, God is the only one that walks through. 
between those animals. Even though it involves a promise to Abraham and his descendants, it was made by God himself, and the covenant was unilateral, and it was entirely unconditional, but God put the only obligation for the covenant on him. Abraham never walked through. It was as if there was an agreement that was signed, a contract that was signed by one party and not the other party. The other party held themselves to all of those conditions. And in this case, God totally put himself on the line. If therefore, then, Paul argues, a man's covenant, when ratified, can't be set aside or have conditions added to it, how much less can a covenant that God makes with himself be annulled or modified? It gives me pretty great encouragement that what God says he means, what God says he will do, he does. Look at verse 17. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. He's saying this. Let me say it in another more understandable way in case you didn't get it the first time. The covenant of promise was superior. The covenant of promise that he made with Abraham was superior to the covenant of law because of chronology. Now, some of you are Bible students. I know you are. I applaud you for that. It's a great thing. And so you might read this text and think, well, as I look at chronology, I'm sure a lot of you are doing this right now. I don't think it was really 430. I think it was more like 645 years. Well, really what's happening here is the 430 years refers to the time that's elapsed between God's last statement of his covenant with Abraham and his giving of the law to Moses at Mount Sinai. The Lord repeated his promise to Abraham's son Isaac and then to his grandson Jacob, and the law came 645 years after Abraham, but 215 years later, God repeated that covenant to Jacob, which means it was exactly 430 years. Isn't that cool? Yeah, you're pretty impressed. That's a good thing. That's an awesome thing. really is great, though, when we look in the context of Scripture and we see Scripture validated and verified. That's really a great thing. And so even in the covenant with Abraham, even that covenant did not establish the principle of salvation by faith alone, but it only verified it, it only ratified it. Because from the time of Adam's fall, faith had been the only means of becoming right with God. Look at verse 18. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Now, you remember Genesis 15, 6, I read it to you just a few moments ago, that Abraham believed God, and that was credited to him for righteousness. Abraham's faith and the law are mutually exclusive. Here's an illustration. If I said to you, my Aunt Mary wants to meet you, and she wants to give you $5 million, she wants to leave that for you in her will, and the only way that you can fail to receive this $5 million is if you don't come and meet my Aunt Mary. The only way that you would not get that $5 million when she died is if you refused to believe me, if you laughed at me and said, you don't have an Aunt Mary, and even if you did have an Aunt Mary, she doesn't have $5 million, and so I'm not going to meet her. That would be the only way that you could fail to receive that $5 million inheritance. But how about this? What if I told you, that I have an Aunt Mary, and she wants to leave you $5 million in her will, but there's one string that's attached to it. Uh, she's a, a, a 70-year-old woman, and she comes from really good stock. Like, she could live to be like 115. And the only thing that you have to do is agree to care for her in her old age. 
So you start doing the math, and you're going, ah, she's 70. She could live to be 115. Like, that, that's like 45 years. And then you do the $5 million, and you go, I don't know that it's worth it, right? I don't know if it's really worth taking care of her. But if I place a condition on it, then that's different. The only way you're going to see that $5 million is if you do what? If you take care of Aunt Mary, right? If you don't take care of Aunt Mary, she's not giving you the $5 million. And so a promise of a gift simply needs to be believed in order to be received. But the promise of a gift with strings attached, you have to do what? You have to obey, you have to fulfill those obligations or you don't get anything. And so by definition, an inheritance is not earned, but it's simply received. And to work for that which is already guaranteed is foolish and unnecessary. So trying to earn the inheritance of God's promises through faith in his son is much worse than foolish. And I'm afraid that that's what a lot of people are trying to do. I sat with a gentleman this week and I said to him, if you were to die tonight and stand before the gates of heaven and God were to say to you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? And he gave the answer that I've heard so many times. And it, and it is so heartbreaking to me to hear people say this, especially people, by the way, that have sat here in this place and I believe have heard the gospel communicated very clearly. And he said to me, I'm trying to be a good man. I'm trying to do all the right things. I'm, I'm trying to be a good husband. I'm trying to be a good father. And so I said to him, so you're hoping that one day when you stand before the gates of heaven, that God on those scales will somehow find you better than bad. And he looked at me and he said, I, I guess that's what I'm saying. How foolish would it be for somebody to say, you've got an inheritance. I'm going to give you this. As God said to Abraham, I'm going to give you this. By faith, I'm going to give you this. I'm going to send a redeemer. I'm going to send a savior. And yet rather than accepting that by faith, we add things to it that we'll never be able to fulfill. Paul says, I know what you're thinking. <laughs> and he really does. Look at verse 19. You're thinking then, why then the law? I mean, we're like three chapters now at the 18th verse in, and you're going, the law can't save you. Your good works can't save you. Doing all of these things can't save you. Well, then why do we even have a law? I know what you're thinking. Why then the law, he writes in verse 19. He said, it was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring, the seed, should come to whom the promise has been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. In light of Paul's convincing argument up to this point, the obvious question would be, why then the law? If salvation has always been by faith and never by works, then why did God make this covenant promise to Abraham that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ and then... 645 years later, he gives the law. And the answer to that question really is very simple. He gave us the law to restrain transgressions or to reveal just how bad we are until Jesus would come, until his virgin birth, until the angels would announce his birth and Jesus would come and he would live amongst us and then 33 years later, he would do what? He would suffer and bleed and die on a cross for our salvation. So he brings the law in order that we might be exposed. The purpose of the law was to demonstrate to man his total sinfulness, his inability to please God by his own works, and his need for mercy and for grace. So God gave the covenant of the law through two sets of mediators, first through the angels and then through Moses to the people. Now look at verse 20. 
Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Here's what's really interesting about this verse. James Montgomery Boyce, who's a commentator that I really enjoy reading, pastor who used to pastor 10th Presbyterian Church in the city of Philadelphia, went to be with the Lord about 10 years ago. And James Montgomery Boyce was a brilliant, brilliant theologian. He wrote this. He said, Galatians 3.20 is the most obscure verse in Galatians, if not in the entire New Testament. In other words, what it said to me, a guy who spent 20 years as a youth pastor, and you know, I, I, gotta, I gotta really study this stuff, don't even bother trying to understand that verse, just move on. All right? That's really what he said to me. And then I read somebody else that said there are 250, 250 different interpretations of this verse, and then somebody who said, no, there's 300, <laughs> and then somebody else said, no, there's 400 different interpretations. And so if you have your pen, I'd like to give you the first 200. I want to make sure you're still with me. No, I think it's really not that difficult. And I don't know if really it's my simplicity that causes me to land on, a, on an understanding of it rather quickly. But it is, it is difficult to translate and to, and to interpret. But I really believe that Paul seems to be pointing out here that a, me, a mediator, literally one who stands between two parties, is needed only when, when there's more than one party involved. Do you remember what we said before when we went back to Genesis 15? Remember that? That's why this is really important. You remember when, when I said that the animals were split in two and normally how contracts were ratified is both people would walk through? And remember how I said in this particular case, God put Abraham into a deep sleep. He was literally having pretty bad dreams. And God then alone walked through, thereby verifying, ratifying the contract. Do you remember that? think that's really cool. Abraham was a witness to the covenant and he was a beneficiary of it, but he wasn't a party to the contract. He had no part in establishing the contract. I know some of you have, have listened to me preach and teach long enough that you know this just happens from time to time, but like I get really excited about that. Okay, I mean, I know some of you are going, that's not really that exciting. Like, I had a lot of other things that happened to me this week that are a lot more exciting. It is such an incredible thing when you think about that. That God, in normal contracts, there would be two people involved. And isn't that what we want our salvation to be? We want somehow God to do something really cool and really great for us. And we love the story of the incarnation of Jesus coming and, and being a little baby. And we're going to celebrate Christmas. And we love the manger scene. You know, the little baby wrapped in clean cloths and laying in, in, in hay. And, and the angels serenading around that. We love all of that. And we even celebrate on Easter. While we don't love it, we're so grateful that he shed his blood on a cross for our salvation. But somehow, we want to have some part in it. Like somehow, it depends on us. Like if we're just, if, if we follow these lists, if he's, if he's really pleased with us, if he really likes us, that somehow he will accept us, that somehow he will bless us. And what this passage does, it says, it says this, it ain't about you. All right? That's like the Southern translation, right? It ain't about you. Normal contracts, yeah, there's two people, but it's all about me. I'm the only one that walked through. I ratified it. I verified it. I stand on it. I am the alpha, the omega, the beginning, the end. What I said I will do, I will do. And that, my friends, is great news. It deserves at least one amen. At least one. 
I mean, that's awesome. That's great. There wasn't two negotiating parties. It was just God. With the law, Moses was a mediator. But when God gave the promise to Abraham, there was just one party, and that was God himself. And so we ask ourselves, what's the purpose of the law? Well, John Calvin, in his institutes, and I'm sure many of you study those on a, on a regular basis, don't you? John Calvin said three things about the law, and I think you'll find this helpful, hopefully. He said the law does these three things. Number one, it acts as a mirror in which we look into the law and we see ourselves. We look into the law and we see ourselves. You ever do that? I mean, you ever just read through the Ten Commandments and go, uh, I got a problem in a few of those, right? I mean, the murder thing, I'm usually pretty good. I haven't killed anybody. Not since I was a very young, no, I haven't killed anybody, right? But you look through those and all of a sudden it says you don't covet. And you go, I think I fudged there. I mean, I think I might have done that. John Calvin says what the law does is it acts as a mirror. It testifies that we need to be saved, but we can't do it on our own. That's what Romans 3.23 says, right? We've all sinned and we've done what? We've fallen short of the glory of God. We've missed the mark. Number two, he says there is a civil use to the law, which makes it easier for a collective body in society in order to be able to control behavior. In other words, it is to restrain evil and to deter. The law then defines correct conduct, right? Does in our culture. I go zipping down the highway, and real quickly, the law is defined for me, right? In one of two ways, by the way, and we're going to see that in just a moment, there's a stop sign it says you should stop. There's a speed limit that says 70, okay? Now, some of you I know are spirit of the laws and not letter of the laws type people, right? Probably where I land, all right? But you know, it's clearly defined. Don't go over 70. Stop at that stop sign. Don't make a right-hand turn there. And that's what the Ten Commandments did. Every society, by the way, needs to have a civil or a moral standard for conduct, if you don't, it leads to chaos, and that society ultimately implodes. The law can't change the heart, certainly, but it can reveal and it can restrain. The last thing John Calvin said in his Institutes is there is the principal use of the law. That is to guide us as believers into good works and for the law to be able to reveal this is what pleases God. This is how God says we ought to live life in order to enjoy the life that he's created for us. And so we operate within those biblical principles, within those guidelines. The law is helpful then, but it can't save us. The law has the power to show us that we're not righteous, but it doesn't have the power to make us righteous. See the difference? If you've got children, in fact, you know that really well, right? Because you have rules in your home, don't you? Some of you have little children and you post them on the refrigerator. Don't do this. Don't do this. Make sure you do this. Make sure you don't do that. And by the way, if you do, here's what's going to happen, right? You post them on your refrigerator. When they get to be a little bit older and they enter into adolescence, now you tell them these things. Those laws, parents, you know this to be true and God knows it to be true of us. Those laws will never cause our hearts to be bent in the right direction which is a mistake that so many of us as parents make. That's another sermon, but so many of us as parents make that. We think that if somehow we can get compliance, that suddenly we've gained the hearts of our children. 
Another sermon, but let me tell you, that's not the way that it works. You can get a child, an adolescent, to comply to a standard, which is what the law does, but the law never changes the heart. And again, another sermon, but parents, we're not after just creating a bunch of robots that understand do's and don'ts. We want their heart bent towards God, don't we? Isn't that what we want? That's what this text, I think, reveals to us. Verse 21. We're running out of time. Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? I love the way Paul answers that. He doesn't dilly-dally around. He doesn't say, as Bill said earlier, Selah, let's stop here for just a moment and think about this. No, he doesn't need to do that. He says, certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would be indeed by the law. In other words, the law was inferior because it could not save. It was not able to impart life. And if it could have done so, it would have been against and contrary to the promise that God has already made. And it would have provided an alternate way of salvation. The law cannot give life. And like I said earlier, the best illustration I can give is to those of you who are parents, those of you who are teachers, those of you who are managers of people. You know you can have rules but you can't change hearts with rules. The law doesn't give life. It only points out how we ought to live life. In fact, if you remember when we were in chapter 2 at verse 21, it would have made the death of Christ tragically unnecessary. Think about the sovereign God of the universe having two ways in which mankind could be reconciled to him by doing good works, by keeping the law, or by faith in Christ alone. And God goes, uh, I, I like having the law idea too, but I'd kind of like to send my one and only son down there, and I'd like to see him suffer and bleed and die on a cross. That's what I'd like. I'd just like to have kind of two ways so that there are kind of dual paths that lead to heaven. Now, why would God do that? If it was possible for us to keep the law perfectly, then hypothetically life would come to us, but it's impossible. In fact, Jesus, all the way through the Gospels, Jesus reiterated that. You know, when the lawyer in Luke 10 came to him and he stood up and put him to the test saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What's written in the law? How do you read it? And every time Jesus did that, the guy walked away going, Oh, I guess I can't. Right? Because that wasn't the way. All the law did was expose that you have a greater need. Verse 22. But the scripture, the ESV says, imprisoned everything. There are other translations, maybe you have one on this morning that says, but the scripture has shut up everything. And really, that translation of shut up (laughs) is really pretty good, although my wife doesn't like me to use that terminology. I apologize ahead of time. But but that's really what it means here, right? Just shut up. That's what the law, the scripture has shut up. It's imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. It's a strong term, but it literally means to lock up securely as your mouth when we use that terminology. To enclose on all sides with no way of escape. To remove every excuse that a person might offer up because we're not good. And we need to be aware that we are not good. And I'm convinced that for so many of us, we really think we aren't that bad. That's the problem. If you really admit it, sometimes when some of us look in the mirror and we go, I'm really pretty good. Not that I look good, right? But really, oh, you know, my actions, I'm really pretty good. I'm a, I'm a pretty decent person. 
I take care of my kids. I take care of my wife. I, I go to work. I pay my taxes. I, I give to the church. I, I say I love the gospel and I give to the cause of the gospel. I, I do all of these things. And yet Paul is saying that sin is the jailkeeper which holds all people in bondage. And we cannot break free. Every sin that we commit draws those chains tighter and tighter and tighter. One commentary said this, not until a person smashes himself against the demands of the law and the accusations of conscience does he recognize his helplessness and see his need for a savior. Not until the law has been arrested and imprisoned do we understand our desperate need of Jesus. Verse 23, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law. We were imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Basically, prior to God's revealing salvation in Christ, men were in a spiritual prison. Picture it like this. The law is a guard. The image is of a jailkeeper, which is the law, that's guarding us on death row, reminding us that we cannot keep the law entirely, and so we stand condemned to eternal separation from God. By the way, just for a moment, imagine living that way every single day of your life. There's a lot of people that do. Understanding that they are condemned, hoping as that man I talked to this week, that somehow when he gets to heaven someday, that somehow the scales will balance out. Yet Paul wrote in Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. When we come to Jesus by faith, when we accept the gospel, we're released from our imprisonment to the law. And then verse 24 says, So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. It's a really cool passage right here. Really cool. That word that's translated in some of your Bibles, guardian, or maybe other translations, it says tutor. It's a little bit misleading because it was not a teacher or a schoolmaster in the same way that we think of a person in our culture. Instead, he was a slave that was employed by Greek or Roman families whose duty was to supervise young boys somewhere between the ages of 6 and 16 on behalf of their parents. It's really great when you think about it, right? I mean, if you got problems with your adolescence, you just go get one of these guys, and they kind of like, they just take him from you, and they kind of take over from there, and then ultimately they're going to send him back to you. I know for some of you where you are right now, you go, where do I sign up? Are those still available someplace? They would take these young boys to and from school. They made sure that they studied their lessons. They trained them in obedience. It's getting better and better, isn't it? They were strict disciplinarians. They would scold them. They would even, historians tell us, they would even whip them, beat them, if they felt that it was necessary. You can imagine that a child, it was so hard on the child that they couldn't wait until the day when they would be released from this guardian or from this tutor. The role of the guardian, though, was never intended to be permanent. And it was a great day of deliverance when a boy finally gained his freedom from the guardian, from his tutor. They would, historians tell us, they would bring a man's toga and they would wrap the little boy up in the man's toga, thereby saying, you are the man now. You are no longer under the guardian, under the tutor. 
You are responsible. You're in a new phase of your life. And now you are responsible for your conduct and for your behavior. Verse 25 says, but now the faith has come. We're no longer under a guardian. We're no longer under a tutor. And so the purpose of the guardian was to take a child only until he grew into adulthood. And then that relationship changed. Sometimes historians tell us that the the young man would go on and he would continue to have a relationship with the, with the tutor. Having completed his assignments, the, the tutor would, would, would go on and he had no more authority or control over the child because that child now was a young man. So he had no more responsibility to the guardian. Here's what's really interesting, and I go back to the analogy of parenting. It's the design of raising children that when a child grows up, they won't simply cast off the values that we've taught them, Right? I mean, we hope that when we train a child and we, we instill into them certain values and certain guidelines that, that somewhere along the line, when they get out of our house, they buy into that. They see the value of living their life in a certain way, and they've become now convinced of the truth of those things that we taught them in our homes. I don't really see too many 26-year-olds that are, that are still, you know, I'm not going to do that. My dad might spank me. I mean, that'd be weird, wouldn't it? You're sitting with a guy at work, and he goes, why don't you do that? Well, my dad might spank me. And you're going, dude, you're 26. You're not any longer, you know, you don't have to do that anymore. You know, if I don't do my chores. Well, what do you mean if you don't do your chores? He's going to take away my car keys. You pay the insurance, all right? There comes a time when we want them to continue to follow in these guidelines. We want them to continue to do these things, but for a different motive, for a different reason. And that is the sole purpose of the law of God. God divinely appoints the the law as a guardian, as a tutor, to lead men to Christ, to lead men and women to an understanding of who they are apart from Christ. We then go into, at salvation, we go into a, a new mode of living where we recognize, hey, we're not saved by those things. We don't have to do those things. It's not about those things. It's about grace and grace alone, faith and trust alone and Christ alone. But God's moral standard doesn't change, and the New Testament reiterates them and points us to the power of the resident Holy Spirit in our lives that enables us to be obedient to those principles. And so Paul is saying that while we no longer have a relationship with the law, just like the the young man no longer has a relationship, he no longer has to be under the authority of the tutor, we don't view the law as a system of salvation It no longer forces obedience out of fear or to gain salvation by performance, but it is there to be our friend, to be our guide. Don't you think this is true? And I don't know, you know, maybe I'm just a a weird parent. I'm thankful that my kids have too because I might be the weird one. I get that. But, you know, I want to get my kids to the point. And and it's really cool with my 21-year-old where I see him doing things and making decisions not based on the fact that I'm going to take the car keys or he isn't going to be able to go out after the football game or do something like that, that he makes choices because he's become convinced that those are the right things, that those are the good things, even though he is no longer under the bondage of his father. Isn't that what you want as a parent? It's exactly what this passage means, that yes, we are The law is there to expose us and to make us feel like who we are. Filthy, dirty, rotten sinners. I know it's not politically correct, but that's who 
we are, right? That's what we are. But once it exposes us and God says, in spite of that, I sent my son to die for you, to pay that sin debt in order that you might come into a relationship with me. I believe our obedience is much greater when it's motivated by gratitude rather than the thought of obedience, that somehow the, the, that obedience might, might pay for my sin debt. That's why we read verses like Psalm 1.1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the, in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers. I love verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. You go, delight? That's what I find my son when I'm having conversations with him. And he goes, yeah, I'm doing this. And part of me wants to go, why? You always hated doing that. And he goes, no, because I buy into it. He hasn't said this yet, but I know this is where we're getting. No, because I buy into that. I see the value of doing that. And so now what used to be, I can't believe you're not going to let me go do that. I can't believe. Now I delight in it because I buy in to it. I do it with a different heart. He delights in the law of the Lord. And in his law does he meditate day and night. I love that. Here's the bottom line. Unless we know how big our sin debt is, we don't have any idea how great Christ's payment was. It's really true. If you think that you're not that bad, then the idea of grace will never change you. And that's really the sweet relationship of law and grace in our salvation. If we're convinced that we really are as bad as we can be, and our sin has separated us from God, and we are desperate, desperate people, then grace is really awesome, isn't it? Grace is really amazing. And so what God did for us by sending his son Jesus to die on the cross is provide a life-changing, eternity-altering, incredible gift. He took our sin, our regrets, our failure, our disappointment, and when we take all of those things and we lay them at the foot of the cross, everything changes. We come into a relationship with him, we realize we're not saved by good deeds, that we are simply saved by grace alone. I fear that for some of us, we haven't yet crossed over that line of faith. We're still trying to please God, somehow gain favor by our good works. And to do that, as I tell you so often, is to be eternally disappointed. And I, I, I plead with you, I really do, I plead with you to come into a saving relationship with Jesus. For some of you, this is just simply a reminder. It's the gospel by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you get that. For others of you, maybe this is the first time that you've really understood what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to simply trust in his promise that he is who he says he is, that he did what he said he did, and he will continue to do what he said he will do. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. God, thanks for difficult passages of scripture because it causes us to really dive in, to dig down really deep. God, I know it's Sunday morning at 10 o'clock and it's real tough to get excited about some obscure, hard, difficult passage of Scripture. But God, it really, really, really stokes my fire today. I am thankful for the law. I'm thankful that it is the law that exposes my sinfulness. But I'm thankful, God, for your grace. Your grace that has been lavished upon me 
and upon people on this planet. And God, I pray for folks in this auditorium this morning, some that have yet to cross over that line of faith, that maybe today will be the day when they come into a saving relationship with Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name.